baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. During the 2018 midterms, women ran in record numbers, then won in record numbers, securing more than 100 seats in Congress and many hundreds more in state legislatures across the country. The gains led some to dub 2018 the year of the woman, but will the changes we saw really only be limited to that one year? Or was 2018 just the beginning of a shift in American politics that will see more female candidates winning year after year? I'm Keith Manconi. This is KCBS In-Depth. And today in the program, we're going to try to get a better handle on the shifting politics of gender by taking a closer look at last year's races. To help us out, we're joined on the show by author and journalist Caitlin Moscatello. Her new book is See Jane Win: The Inspiring Story of the Women Changing American Politics. And that story she's referring to there is the story of the many women who won in 2018. It's the story of how they did it, why they did it, and what it means to run for office while female. Caitlin Moscatello, thanks for joining KCBS In-Depth. Hi, thank you for having me. So the numbers are pretty striking from last year's midterms. Uh, We saw a record 117 women uh, elected to Congress, almost 1,900 to state legislatures, and nine to state governorships. But you actually had a sense that women candidates uh, were going to be making some big moves well before election night 2018. Uh, In fact, uh, I think it's fair to say your reporting journey uh, began much closer to election night 2016. So uh, bring us back to the beginning of this reporting journey you went on and what clued you in that something big was going on here? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, in the wake of the 2016 election, um, there were reports that we knew that groups such as the ACLU and Planned Parenthood um, were receiving millions of dollars in donations. Um, all of a sudden, there was just this flood, this outpouring, specifically from women um, who were looking to take action, I think, after um, the results of the 2016 presidential election. And then, of course, there was the Women's March. Um what I was interested in, though, was like it was very clear that the public temperature had changed. But I was interested in what would the lasting action of this be? And around right around the Women's March, there started to be sort of rumblings, early reports that groups like Emerge America and Emily's List and other groups that train and recruit Democratic women to run for office, they were being flooded. They were just being inundated with applicants. So like in a typical year, they might receive maybe 900 applicants. And then all of a sudden there were 14,000. It was a very significant jump. And at that point, I thought, if women, if these women who are saying they're interested in running, if they, if, if even a fraction of them actually run, if they actually make it onto the ballot, this could really be that lasting action. I didn't know at the time that it was going to become just one of the absolute biggest stories of 2018. So, I mean, this was back in February 2017 when I started calling various groups um, and getting women on the phone who were thinking about running. And what I found is I would get off the phone with them and I would just feel really energized. I would feel really hopeful. There was so much fight in these women. And I kind of thought, well, win or lose, 
this journey is something, this is a story worth telling and I'm going to follow it. So I really started reporting back then, not knowing um, and really not knowing until election night if I was telling this amazing, inspiring story of these women who fought back um, and made it onto the ballot and made it into offices, or if even with women running in higher numbers, if they would lose and if we would be looking at a story of, well, what went wrong? Obviously, we know now that it was a historic moment for women. We have more women now in Congress than ever before, more women in state legislatures than ever before. And we also have our first female majority state legislature in Nevada. Yeah, I read that the original title for this book was actually See Jane Run, but you had to update that to See Jane Win after the returns on uh, election night 2018. Tell us a little bit about what went into making this book. This book is pulling on a lot of, I I guess, uh, information that we've learned on how gender plays into politics around the country, but it's also a lot of reporting on specific female candidates and the journeys that they went on. So an extensive amount of reporting here. Yes. um, It was two years of reporting. I traveled around the country. Um, You know, I know that we we have data there. There was some data, of course, on um, why women haven't historically run. So we know that some of the biggest barriers that have kept women from running for office is that they often question their own qualifications and think, well, I don't have this traditional political resume, so maybe I shouldn't run. Um, Or it's... um, they also no one encourage, encourage and no one encourages them to run, or certainly not nearly at the same rate that men are encouraged to run. So we have this data. You know, of course, there's this there's the um, grim statistics at the time of of the low number of women in, in um, elected seats. But I wanted to really illustrate this, and I thought in order to do that, I want to be eye level with these women. I want to be on the ground with them and show what this experience is like. And so when I was thinking about in the early stages of this book, I knew that I wanted to follow women running for various levels of office. I knew that I wanted to follow a diverse group of women. It is very different to run as a woman of color than it is to run as a white woman. It's different if you are an LGBTQ woman. Like There are different experiences if you're a low-income woman. Um, so I wanted to make sure that I was really showing a range of those experiences by being um, with these women throughout the process. But I ended up with these four candidates as the main characters who are um, all ended up winning their seats. So it's Congress now Congresswoman Abigail Spamberger of Virginia, um, now New York Assemblywoman Catalina Cruz, the first dreamer in New York elected to office, um, now uh, Tennessee State Representative London Lamar. She is the youngest black woman um, in the Tennessee State Legislature. And Anna Eskamani in Florida, she is uh, the first Iranian uh, American to be elected to public office in her state. All right. So a lot of stories to get through there, a lot of reporting that went into that, as you just referred to. But let's go back to uh, back to February 2017 and again, talk a little bit about what was changing at that time, because as you indicated, there had been some barriers in the past uh, to women running. We have historically not seen women candidates turn out in such great numbers. But as you indicated, there was a surge of interest in the early part of 2017. What, in your view accounts for that surge? Yeah. So there's really two things. Um, One is that women across this country, um, you know, saw Hillary Clinton, a woman who had uh, very much kind of played by the rules, right? She had this long political resume. Um, She had run maybe more of a traditional, what you might call a traditional campaign. Um, And she was extremely qualified and she lost. And then on the other hand, the person who won uh, was known to many 
Americans as a reality TV star, you know, the star of The Apprentice. Um, I'm based in New York, and I think a lot of, so here he's very much, Trump is very much known as, um, you know, kind of this real estate mogul. He has various reputations here in the city. But uh, throughout the country, not everyone was so familiar with him, right? And he had no political qualifications to speak of. He ran a campaign that um, was blatantly sexist and racist, um, certainly nothing like we had ever seen before. Um, he had been caught on tape bragging about assaulting women. Um, and that guy won. That guy won. And I think for a lot of women, there was, it was almost like having this bucket of ice water dumped over their heads where it was like, if that guy, you know, if he can be president of the United States, surely I can run for my city council or my state legislature. Uh, excuse me, my state legislature or for Congress. Um, so I think that qualification barrier really got moved aside. Um, this was a really interesting shift because Andrea Du Steele, who is the founder of Emerge America, so it's a group that trains uh, Democratic women to run for office. She had told me that actually they had been preparing for Hillary Clinton to win, and they thought women are going to be really excited after seeing uh Hillary Clinton win, and we want to be prepared for that influx of women, right? And that, of course, didn't happen. And right after the election in 2016, she thought, oh my God, like, no, no women are going to want to run. Who would want to do this? Who would look at what just happened and say, I want to put myself out there and do this? And now we know, of course, that the exact opposite happened. Um, and they these groups were prepared for the flood of women that came to them, but for a completely different reason. Um, they had been preparing Hillary will win and she will inspire women to run. And instead, you had this surge of women who really saw, I think, and really felt many for the first time that there rights were at risk um, and that they had to step up and do something. And this was a um, a call to action, right? So we talked about one of the barriers is that women aren't encouraged to run. And another barrier that kind of went away was that they almost felt like, well, no one's going to ask me, but it's so urgent. I need to do it anyway. And so they really overcame these two um, traditional obstacles to getting women on the ballot. Mm. All right. Uh, we're going to continue that story in just a moment. But I want to remind our listeners, you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. It's our weekly deep dive into some of the major events and trends shaping the news we report on each and every day here on KCBS. I'm Keith Benconi. Today we're talking about gender in politics and the politics of gender with Caitlin Moscatello. Her new book is See Jane Wynn, the inspiring story of the women changing American politics. Now, I do want to dwell on for just a moment the fact that the surge in winning female candidates that we saw in 2018 uh, skewed very, very heavily uh, Democratic. Uh, the incoming House uh, had only one Republican woman, is my understanding. What, in your view, accounts for the skewed winningness of Democratic women versus Republican women? Right. I mean, this is a very lopsided advancement for women. Um, there are fewer Republican women in Congress right now than there was over a decade ago. Um, I do think that as the party has increasingly gone uh, further and further to the right and become more restrictive um, when you talk about reproductive rights, um, when you talk about equal pay, these issues that um, have become quite partisan and weren't at a certain point. They used to not be quite so partisan. Um, I do think you have women who, um, you know, on the Democratic side, they're rising up against something. They were fighting for something. Um, on the Republican side, what we're seeing now um, in the twenty with so within the uh, within the twenty 
2018 election cycle, I was curious if groups, there was a group called Republican uh, Republican Women for Hillary. And these were women who were registered Republicans who are dedicated to their party, um, but they could not stand for Trump being the nominee, uh, not with the sexist, misogynistic rhetoric coming out of his campaign. And they canvassed for Hillary. That group still exists. It's now called Republican Women for Progress. Um, they have endorsed um, multiple moderate Democratic women who have run for office. Uh, I was curious if some of those women would run, if they would say, when I started off with this reporting in the early months, um, I was looking for that. I thought, are we going to see these women who say, you know what, my party has gone so far off the rails, I want to pull it back, I'm going to run and do that. Um, it didn't happen. It did not happen. And I think there's various reasons for that. I mean, I don't it's a it's very difficult to run as a Republican woman right now, given the rhetoric coming out of the party and also the fact that it is a boys club. It continues to be vastly, vastly dominated by white men. Um, and there's been recent reports that after the success of Democratic women in the 2018 elections, that there are Republican women who are there is a um, an uptick in Republican women interested in running this cycle. But in those same early reports, we're hearing anecdotes that they're saying, well, I went to my local um, you know, party officials and I said, I want to run. And they said, well, we already have a guy for that. Sorry. Um, there is the reality that in order for the Republican Party to make room for more women, there will have to be fewer men because there's only a certain number of seats. It's simple math. Um, it's yet to be seen whether or not they'll make that shift. But absolutely, in, in the 2018 elections um, and continuing now, we really are seeing most of the progress um, being made on the Democratic side. And picking up on that for just a moment, if despite the gains that we saw in 2018, there still is a very heavy gender imbalance in the federal level, at the state level. Absolutely. And and to clear yeah. that ground, I mean, at some point, the gains do need to be made by female candidates, uh, female conservative candidates. You can't you can't close that gap with female Democratic candidates alone. No. Yeah, that's that's 100 percent correct. I mean, in order to have equity, we are we would definitely need to see um, advances on the Republican side of the aisle. Um, and I I'm I think that that's something that people want to see. Um, but what we what we know right now is that, you know, we did have an uptick um, in terms of, you know, getting closer to equity. We're still far away. Right. So we are only 29 percent of our state legislatures are female um, Congress. We are still um, about around 24 percent. So we have a long way to go. And you're right. In order for um, us to have true in order for this country to have true equity in our representation, um, we will need to have more women elected um on the Republican side of the aisle. And I just, it's really up to the party right now. I mean, they, there, there are efforts. Um, they are, there are efforts on that side of the aisle and in terms of recruiting women, but recruiting is different than supporting and actually uh, getting behind these candidates early on. Um, and also not just having um, token candidates, you know, one or two women here or there that can sort of be uplifted as an example of, oh, hey, we're doing this. Um, that's not really how it works. That's not one or two women or, you know, uh, referring to a few women who have done well. And of course, there are women in the Republican Party who are very prominent in the party. Um, but referring to a few women um, doesn't account for the vast, vast um, difference in terms of how many men and how many women are in office within the GOP. Hmm. 
Let's turn now to the business of running, uh, what it takes to launch a successful campaign as a female candidate. You once again in this book profiled a number of successful female candidates in the 2018 election. Uh, Abigail Spanberger, Catalina Cruz, Anna Eskamani, London Lamar. You also profiled the political dynamics that oftentimes make it difficult for women to run, among them media coverage and how the candidacies of women are framed by the media. So tell me a little bit about how those dynamics played out this time around. Yeah, well, this is it's changing. Um, I cite a few examples in the book. If you look back to the first year of the woman, um, which is, you know, back in the early 90s um, and the coverage of women back then was was in many ways worse, or at least blatantly sexist. Um, However, there are also examples that I saw with the candidates I was following. So there was one article in a, um, I believe it was a weekly uh, paper near Richmond that um, described Abigail as a willowy blonde and um, talked about her her primary opponent uh, as, you know, that he was sort of strong and you could tell from his tone. And then without citing any examples, they just kind of described her as being like this very attractive, tall, blonde woman. Um, and very much... So it's a, a matter of language a lot of the time. It can be, right? I mean, it can also be um, Lauren Underwood, who is uh, a congresswoman from Illinois. She's now the youngest black woman to ever serve in Congress. Um, she talks really candidly in the book about the fact that, you know, she was a black woman running in a white majority district against six white men in the Democratic primary. And on the cover of even the New York Times, it was very, you know, or not, uh, there was like this huge picture of her in a living room. She was doing, um, you know, as candidates do, right? They do local, they do fundraise, private fundraisers, or they might be talking and doing a meet and greet to kind of listen to uh, voters and their uh, their concerns or the issues that they care about most. And so she was doing that work as candidates should do. Um, but there's this photo of her and she's, you know, this black woman standing in the middle of the room and there's um, mostly white women all around her. Um, and it just very much was about like can a black woman win in a, a white district and what she was saying is like even that coverage this can she win this focus this such a heavy focus on her race um she was like that does not help me that is not good press that just even among democrats even among progressive democrats who consider themselves you know who might not consider themselves sort of um biased uh, when it comes to to race, um, when it comes to gender, you know, she thought she said that does not help me. And it was the mainstream media who was doing some of that type of coverage. Um, so it, there's they experienced it in different ways. But of course, there's a whole other genre. Right. So if we're talking, there's mainstream media, um, but there's also what we saw in 2018. You know, we now have this entire other landscape of social media. So all the candidates I uh followed for this book were attacked online. I don't think that's surprising, but what is perhaps alarming is what those attacks look like. So when women, women are attacked online on social media more than men in general, um, but with, and that exists as well, that's true as well for candidates. But the the nature of those attacks is often sexualized and it can often be violent and direct threats. And so you had, Abigail Spamberger is another example of this. She had people threatening to gang rape her. So they were also dealing with that. Anna Eskamani uh, down in Florida, she had someone superimpose her face onto a pornography clip 
email it to her and threatened to release it on social media if she didn't pull out of the race. So you have sort of the mainstream media and the treatment that and the conversations around sexism and gender that we've been having for a long time. And you also have this whole other landscape that's still developing. And frankly, from what I'm hearing from these women, has just become increasingly brutal. Um, so I wanted to show in the book both of those um, experiences as well. Mm. I want to remind our listeners one last time that you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we're speaking to journalist and author Caitlin Moscatello about her new book, See Jane Wynn, The Inspiring Story of the Women Changing American Politics. I want to go to a point that you made in your book, that is that oftentimes in past election cycles, many female candidates were somewhat reluctant to bring in their own personal story, their personal narrative into their candidacy. For example, you point out that a lot are very reluctant to make their children, especially if they're young children, a facet of their candidacy for fear that that might invite a, a certain kind of scrutiny. You know, is she giving the proper care to her children? Is she spending enough time with her family? Those were the questions that uh, women candidates oftentimes faced in past elections. But you're saying something changed in this most recent election. Tell us about how personal narratives were used and uh, how that played out in this most recent election. Yeah, I mean, I truly believe that this was the winning strategy for women in 2018, and we're going to continue to see this going forward, is that these women ran as their authentic selves. They laid it out on the table. If they had little kids, guess what? At campaign events, they were there with their little kids, and their two-year-old might be running around, and they might be making noise, and that's just that just is what it is. And they were saying, you know, this is my life. This is what it is. I am not. They were not trying to fit into that traditional mold of what a politician is which if we're going back historically, who is that person, right? It's a male over 40. He's probably white. He probably has um, a wife um, who voters probably assume is at home taking care of their beautiful children. Um, and so it doesn't, ha- you know, and women who were, the women who ran and were successful in 2018, they kind of threw that away and said, no, I'm not going to try to fit into this mold. It didn't work for Hillary, right? They saw that not work for her. And I think it was, why am I going to put myself on a shelf for that? No, I'm just going to run and I'm going to run as I truly am. And it really helped them connect with voters um, to see a woman, to see someone who looks like you, who sounds like you, who has lived a life experience, is talking about that experience, who you can go to a campaign event and see the realities of her life and parts of that look like your own life, that is incredibly powerful. Um, and so, yes, I mean, child women with children were just an example of that, but we did see women running much more openly um, as as moms and talking about that. I mean, we had two female gubernatorial candidates who were breastfeeding in campaign ads last year. We had um, Gret- uh, Luba Gretchen Shirley here in New York, um, who was running for Congress out on Long Island. Um, she had a four-year-old and a two-year-old. I believe her oldest was four. Um, and two very young children. I know her youngest was two at the time. He broke his leg um, during the campaign cycle. She had been paying for childcare and everything else. And then she thought, and she had been taking him to events, even though people were advising her not to because of the optics. And she said, I can't do this. I can't afford, I'm a regular person. I can't afford to be running for office um, and paying $17 to $22 an hour for childcare. I mean, those expenses really add up for a typical family. She saw that, rightfully so, as a real barrier for women like her who are interested in running for office. She successfully petitioned the FEC and was able to 
uh, get it approved that now uh, now candidates with kids they are allowed to use campaign funds to pay for childcare, which is a huge um, a, f- a huge step forward. And I think also an example of how when more women enter the political space, they change it. This was a system designed mostly by men for men, and I do think you see these shifts of women when they enter the space and say, "No, this doesn't make sense. This isn't fair. It isn't right." Well, we're uh, running up towards the end of our program, but uh, we started on a particular question, and I think uh, we should end on that particular question as well. That question being, was 2018 a one-off, a blip on the radar, or are we seeing a more fundamental change in the way that American politics are working? You were just talking there about a lot of the different ways that women candidates are being perceived and the ways that they're able to run, and perhaps that's going to translate into changes in the way their candidates are viewed, uh, candidacies are viewed, and the ways that politics more broadly uh, express themselves throughout the country. What What is your sense of what we're about to see? You know, we're coming up on another election cycle in 2020. What What's your sense of what's that going to look like? Is that going to be an extension of 2018, something new? What do you expect? Yeah. I mean, as more and more women run, it becomes less of a big deal that they're running, which is what we want, right? The goal here is that there's never another year of the woman, that there's never another time when we say, oh, yay, here's a whole group of women running. That should be the norm. It should be the norm that there are both male and female candidates down the ballot for all sorts of races. Um, that That's where we want to be. That's where we should be. And so I do think that, um, you know, some, there's this term that's sort of used among women who are uh, have been in this effort to get more women in office. They say, if you see it, you can be it. I know it's a little cheesy, but it really is true. The power of seeing women who look and sound like you in positions of power in elected office, it turns the switch on. It really makes other women see themselves there. And actually, the the leaders of these groups that I've spoken with, I was actually um, with Amanda Lippman, the founder of Run for Something a few weeks ago. And I asked her this. I said, is it pretty much the same like in terms of people who are calling you or who are signing up um, or applying to be a part of Run for Something? Is it kind of the same? Is it stagnant? And she said, no, it's continuing to go up and up and up. And not only that, it's not only just women, but for instance, you have Danica Rome in Virginia, who in 2017 in their state elections, she became the first trans woman in the state to win an election. And Amanda was telling me that right after that, the week after that, they had 17 trans women contact them and say, I want to run for office. When women see themselves in those roles, women like them, it encourages them to run. And so So I think we're actually just going to continue to see this. Um, What I hope is that it really much, very much becomes the norm. And um, just to kind of steer to 2020, I mean, think about how normal it's. It was such a big deal when when Hillary Clinton was running in 2016 um, and when she became the party's nominee. But think about how normal it felt for there to be multiple women in this uh, highly contested Democratic primary. Um, So I think that's where we're going. I think that's where we're heading. We're not there yet, but I think we're on our way. All right. So a lot more to watch out for in the year ahead as the coming election unfolds, but we're going to have to round it out there. We have been speaking once again to journalist and author Caitlin Moscatello about her new book, See Jane Wynn, The Inspiring Story of the Women Changing American Politics. And got to say, we barely scratched the surface on what is in that book. Uh, Two years of reporting once again went into it, and it really comes across in the work. Caitlin Moscatello, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.
Want to give a special thank you to Radio.com sister station Winds in New York for helping to make this program possible. So thank you guys. Also want to remind our listeners that you can find past editions of KCBS In-Depth online at kcbsradio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Thanks for listening. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 